What's happening? Welcome to the Wong Notes Podcast, episode two, with John Schofield. <laughs> I'm super stoked because he's one of my heroes. Speaking of heroes, did you guys check out last week's episode with Satch? I hope you did. That was episode one. Even Sammy and Michael Anthony checked it out. Van Halen. Speaking of Van Halen, next week on this podcast, I'm going to be wearing a Van Halen t-shirt. Did I fake you out there? Did I make you upset? Sorry. Take that energy, harness that energy, and smash that subscribe button and that five-star review. Because you know what? We're trying to go up these charts. Get people excited about this podcast. Get more people listening because we are very excited about all the guests that we have this season and for next season. But today's episode, John Schofield. I first got wind of Sco when I was a teenager, when Uber Jam came out. Some of my friends in the jam scene were like, bro, you got to check Sco. He's sick. Sure enough, they were right. Also, my dad had a bunch of his records and CDs at home that I was able to devour as soon as I really got hip to him. He's one of those cats that you know that it's him as soon as you hear it. You also know when someone's trying to do the sco thing. We're not just trying, like when they're like doing the sco thing. It's it's a thing. To have a sco thing, something that's yours, is so unique. Not that many guitar players have that. With him, he's got it. And it's so hard to quantify what it is because part of it's the tone, the touch, the feel, the phrasing, the sound of it, timing, note choices. There's so many complex things that go into the SCO thing. It's really fun to try to dissect and see what it is and to talk to him about it. What a dream. I'm stoked about this. We get into some things. If you're not familiar with Schofield, let me give you a little more background. He's played with everybody from Chet Baker, Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock. He had Jocko Pastorius in his band. Okay, we're talking heavy cats. Schofield is one of the cats. He's one of the few guys to infiltrate both the jazz scene and the jam scene. A lot of jam heads know him from like Phil Lesh and Friends, Government Mule, or Uber Jam. It's fun. We kind of address this in the interview, and he talks about the scenes being very similar and the intention being very similar. So it's fun. Look, whether you know Schofield or not, you're going to get a lot out of this interview, and I'm really excited for you to hear it. Let's hit it. Boom! All right, now that I got you all amped up, I just want to take a second and acknowledge something because many of you guys know that I am from Minneapolis. I grew up here. I live here now. And our city is hurting. And many people around the world are hurting because of some things that are happening right now. And I just wanted to acknowledge it and say this interview was done a few weeks ago, so we don't address any of those things now. Okay? All right. A lot of people ask me what I use on the road for backline gear when I show up at a festival, when I show up at a gig in another country or something, and I haven't been able to fly with all my gear. Basically, what I ask for is any Fender Stratocaster made in the last 10 years to be there for me to use as a backup. I normally travel with my guitar, but I always ask for a backup Strat, just in case. And I also say... Pretty much any Fender tube amp is good to go. My preference is a Super Reverb. It's got four 10-inch speakers, which respond a little bit differently than 12-inch speakers. Otherwise, I'll ask for a Fender Twin Reverb, 
which has a little more oomph in the low end, but the tighter low end of the 410s sometimes is nice for that spanky funk thing. Also, Fender Deluxe, it's great. Hot Rod Deluxe, those are awesome too. Basically, I've trusted Fender tube amps with any situation with Wolfpack or Fearless Flyers or when I'm touring on my own. We just ask for Fender tube amps and they've always been really great. And you know, sometimes people are into the vintage thing. That's awesome. I dig vintage instruments, I dig vintage gear, but I have found there is a little more consistency in the newer stuff as far as just like, is it gonna work really well? Is there some weird noise? Is there some weird buzz? Look, don't come at me. If you like vintage gear, great. Vintage gear is dope. But I just, I'm going off my own experience. So I would suggest go out, check out some Fender amps, check out some Fender tube amps. I also have this new, I've been trying to do an A-B test on this Fender Twin Tone Master. When I play clean, I've, I've sent recordings of the Tone Master versus my regular twin. A lot of people can't tell the difference. So check it out for yourself, see what you think. All right, thanks so much for being a part of this. I really dig what you do. You're a huge influence on a, a lot of people, uh, especially in my generation. And uh, it's an honor to talk to you and I appreciate you spending some time doing this. Well, thanks, Corey. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. There's a thing about the guitar where everybody's trying to figure out their own voice, figure out their own thing on the instrument. And the superpower that you have seemed to have unlocked for yourself as an artist and as a guitar player is that I know within three notes if it's you. Can you speak to, in some sense, of how you've developed your voice and what do you consider? Because I'd be interested to hear what, what you think are the key factors of what your voice is on the instrument and as an artist. Wow. Well, first of all, thanks, man. That's a you know huge compliment. And uh, I, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's probably um, simpler than most people would think. I mean, first of all, just, I mean, not to, not to make any of this sound, you know, uh, less important than it is. Everybody has their own voice as a human being. And the problem is we can't get rid of it. Because <laughs> uh, if I had had my way, uh, uh, and, and to a certain extent still do, there are a lot of people that I love the way they play that I, I get frustrated because I can't copy them. Um, so, you know, everybody's sound has to do with their limitations as well as their strengths, you know, so we got to remember that, but mainly I knew that jazz music was a kind of music. And I say that it, meaning the greater jazz yeah. thing, you know, um, was the kind of music that actually wanted you to have your own voice, you know? So I, and I love that as a jazz fan early on. That, oh, man, this guy, yeah, he's doing his own thing. And the same kind of music can have all different kinds of players, you know. Um, and it's, it's called jazz music, but there's a Thelonious Monk on piano and there's a Bill Evans on piano and a Bud Powell. And they all are completely different, you know, like some guys do this sort of thing. Some guys do that thing, but they're all playing the same music. And it just makes it more interesting that they have these different styles and it's the same and, you know, when you think about writers and actors and, and uh, uh, you know, films or uh, anything like that, painters, it's a big world out there and you can find a niche where your strengths will shine. 
And the other thing, you know, I mean, really, when we're talking just about guitar playing and music and stuff, was I was, uh, you know, I wanted to play jazz all the time. I was trying to learn how to play bebop, you know, and standards and the, just the straight-ahead jazz thing, which I'm still really involved with. But because of my age group, fusion came in and, yeah. and was huge. You know, when I just started to get good enough to get gigs, fusion was the thing, you know? So I played in all these bands where I went back to my uh, rock and roll roots, which were, you know, from actually probably like six years before that. And uh, so I always had both things happening. Yeah. And that and, and also that was a time when that actually was new, you yeah. know, when playing guitar and bending notes and playing bluesy, you know, kind of on a with a lighter setup was mm -hmm. different from what jazz guys did, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so it was all kind of just this hodgepodge thing. And at the time when I was putting my style together, you know, so it's, and that wasn't anything up to me. That was just the fact that I was there, you know? So sometimes just being in the right room or being in the right decade. <laughs> I mean, we all are what we are, you know, yeah. we're the sum total of everything we've heard and everything we've absorbed. And at the certain time in your life when you're really into it you know when you're young and you have this uh, incredible passion and and uh desire you know and you soak things up that's because and and you realize afterwards well that was that certain thing that was happening at that time was became part of you you know yeah and uh so we're all like that you know yeah, and what's interesting, you bring up the the jazz thing, saying that you know the music itself and the audience encourages the individual's voice and encourages the uniqueness of a person. I was thinking about that, and then also, that's kind of what the jam scene is as well. And what's interesting to me is that you've been a part of both of those things. And the jam scene, I guess, falls under... I mean, jazz kind of falls in that? Like, it's they're, they're both kind of elusive titles or something. That's where the, the jam session was a jazz word, you know, yeah. that, that was like this thing that, that the old jazz musicians used to do. And it was, uh, kind of a special thing a long time. I talk about 1935 or whatever, you know, yeah. and when they, they weren't playing gigs, they were just playing stuff they liked to do. Yeah. I was very lucky that the jam scene kind of came along and that, uh, that I could fit my fusion -y stuff or whatever it was, you know, in, in with that. Well, yeah, and it seems like there's not a lot of artists that can fit in with both so seamlessly, and especially being such an important part of both lineage, uh, of like the jazz side with Miles and Herbie and Dijonette, Gary Burton, Chet Baker, all those people on that side that you've played with, but then also all the things that you've done in the jam scene with Modesky, Martin and Wood, Government Mule and Uber Jam, projects that you've been a part of or projects that you've spearheaded. What is the biggest difference and what's the most common thread that you see between the jazz scene and the jam scene and also just like that playing style in general? Um, you know, my, my take is that uh, as soon as rock musicians started to kind of stretch out and take long solos, which happened in the late sixties, you know, mm -hmm. with cream and, and bands like that, as soon as that happened, the jazz connection was made. And at the same time, jazz musicians, because 
all of a sudden there was all this great rock music. I mean, some of the older jazz musicians I know talk about that when they were already playing jazz and good at it, you know, but they might have been in their 20s and a Sergeant Pepper came out and they said, yeah. wow, this is really hip stuff, you know? Yeah. So I see it as a, a, a continuous line from there, you know, that uh, that it's always been happening. And, and when guitar became the number one instrument of the world in the 60s, you know, and every kid wanted to play guitar. And then it just made sense that that this other kind of music would would be played on guitar, which was in, it utilized improvisation, you know, and jazz, really jazz. I mean, every time we kind of take a solo or whatever, that's a, a jazz thing, you know. And and even though we think of it as like, I'm going to play uh, an Indian solo or I'm going to play the blues, you know, or I'm going to play a country type thing the idea of an improvised solo came from jazz and a long time ago you know so when we hear the first country western records you know with a solo that's kind of improvised or blues or whatever that those guys kind of got it from the, the new orleans jazz so yeah. it's really one straight line and and the jam scene i guess was kind of a reaction maybe to uh you know, the sort of sterile pop music of the 90s and, and young people wanted this other thing. And they went back to this thing that the dead had been doing and had been actually been around for a while. And the other thing is, is, you know, I can't think of anybody who stands alone as having embedded music. You know, sure, yeah. it, it, it's a shared thing. So yeah. it comes from way back, you know. Well, and it seems to me like with all that stuff, one of the things that that sometimes kind of separates it is obviously jazz and the jam world, rock music. It is groove based music, R&B stuff, blues stuff. It's groove based music. Yeah. But some of the difference is some of its backbeat music and some of it's not a strong two and four, like certain certain types of jazz are not a there's, there's no two and four. That being said, you've played with a lot of rhythm sections. You've played with a lot of different bands. And and even you yourself, you know, having from like the Gary Granger, Dennis Chambers thing, uh, playing with Peter Erskine, guys like Adam Deitch and Louis Cato or Bill Stewart and Steve Swallow. There's so many, so many, each, all those guys have such a unique thing in their own right. And then you have your thing, which is so unique. When you get together with these different rhythm sections and different bands, or when you're putting different things together, what are you looking for in those musicians and what are you drawing from or trying to inspire or being inspired by with different rhythm sections you play with? Whatever it is, it's gotta be funky. Oh yeah. Remember that song? And you know, funky to me kind of swings, you know? Yeah. So, uh, as a, lover of swing music and funk uh it, it all just if it feels right you know there's a certain groove thing that's that's really intangible that i can't say but when i'm playing with you know uh adam deitch or or billy martin um uh lewis cato and, and these great drummers in the and dennis you know early on dennis chambers and and uh these guys, when we're playing backbeat music, like you said, you know, if you pick the right song and the right groove, it feels like there's enough room to find the rhythmic varieties that are exist in jazz music, you know, in there. Yeah. And, you know, I got this really, you know, I started playing fusing music with, with Billy Cobb, you know, a long time ago. 
And yeah. and I was into that, but I was still thinking back of my head, I want to be a jazz guy and everything. And then when I got with Miles Davis, who was my idol of jazz idol, you know, yeah. everybody's not just me. Um, but when I got with him, I saw how seriously he took how to make jazz work in quote unquote rock or funk or whatever you call it. That's what he was all about. And we talked about it all the time. He talked about it, talked to us about it. And, uh, and, and I, I really understood after a while, um, you know, how to find that, that thing, you know, what felt good. And I think he was talking about what swings, you know, that's a, a word that probably to him, he didn't even want to use it because it had been so overused. You know, every generation, yeah. you just get sick of whatever's going around all the time. And so people were talking about what swings. And there's probably a preconceived notion of what swing is to a lot of, you know, depending on what generation. You're varies in. for different people, you know. Yeah. But just that same thing that feels good in, in there, he could find it in funk, you know. And, and when he listened to James Brown or even reggae, you know, and things like that. Uh, he found a way to play his thing and that felt really good. That was, that made you want to keep playing. When I say playing, I mean, solo, you know, to play with yeah. a group and have forward motion and make it really feel good. And that's when the music comes alive, you know, and that's, that's, uh, I've just been lucky enough to play with good players that where it feels right. When I imagine artistically, there's also a certain freedom when it's Miles who gives you permission to do that and is encouraging that where it's like, you know, some people might, especially the, the quote unquote jazz snob who might say like, you're not allowed to do something. It's like, well, Miles told me I could. So uh, you, you're going to fight him on it. <laughs> I guess I guess it's human nature to try and just categorize everything, you know. Yeah. And and uh, and the thing was. Miles was really smart, man. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to be a rock star and he did it. And a lot of people resented him for that. What do you, what do you consider are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from working with Miles or Billy Cobham or Herbie Hancock? Those or guys from the jazz background spent, you know, a lifetime trying to, uh, figure out how to get to, uh, the moment of creativity when, being spontaneous and that that something happens and we all know this i know you know it you know when you're there and you're trying out an idea with a group for the first time and it takes off together and and you get this spontaneous first take thing happening and then you know you might feel you know you feel like you're playing in in a way you know you're not going through the motions you know yeah and that that actually is better that yeah. when you hear that, a recording of that, it's actually better than when, you know what I mean? Totally. <laughs> it's not like pop music where, where you know, you're overdubbing and layering everything. That's a great thing. That's something different. But this thing of playing together and getting to that fresh thing, that's what Miles was obsessed about. And it seems like all the great musicians from jazz that I've met are, are into that. And then when you talk to uh, Phil Lesh, he's trying to get, to something like that too you know he it's it's not just jazz it's creativity and uh there's something that happens you know to how to get to that <laughs> yeah that's that's what i've learned from from how, and, and you know what we know it instinctually anyway we know this but hanging out with uh the great musicians i've gotten to hang out with it's just it just uh you know really solidifies that for you you know that, that wow what I kind of felt intuitively is right because this guy 
is talking about the same thing. Yeah. And so much of it to me seems beyond just like, here's what I can do on my instrument. It's more about concept. And what I've noticed with some of those cats and even what I've been trying to absorb through your music is so much about concept. And when we're talking about those legends and the jazz scene in general, and then the lineage of that sort of thing, if you think about like the year 1959, where you have Coltrane exploring all harmonic new concept, a ton of harmony. You have Miles doing static harmony uh, with with kind of blue. You have Ornette Coleman doing Shape of Jazz to Come, where it's like blowing harmony somewhat out the window. Dave Brubeck in the same year doing Time Out. Wow, like all in the jazz same year. And, yeah, all in the same year. And then you take like kind of using that as a, a way to branch out into different things and exploring all of those concepts. The one that I see seen you and a lot of other uh, funk musicians latch onto is more of like that from that Miles branch of modal music or stuff that's kind of hanging in one tonic center for a while, not a ton of changes. That's, that's super fun to explore. But one thing that I notice sometimes, especially in the jam scene, there's a lot of amazing jam bands. There's a lot of bands that are figuring things out and uh, me still also figuring things. I mean, we're all learning constantly, but one thing that I see sometimes with the one chord modal, just like playing on E7 for six minutes or something, sometimes what ends up happening is it sounds like noodling or it sounds like just kind of meandering over one That's thing. That's because they're not jazz musicians. One, That's the whole thing. thing of being a jazz musician is to not noodle, you know? Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, sure, there's eight million, you know, college jazz bands that are noodling up there. And mm-hmm. and it is, a, you're right, it is a, a big, big trap, this noodling thing. And I think that you'll probably agree that it's really important to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course, you know, no, really listen, you know. I yeah. mean, in other words, you don't listen to yourself. Listen to what's going on around you. And then you're playing will subconsciously fit what's happening and then it's no longer noodling and i'm you know i i have to remind myself every time i play to do this because you know what basically i just want to get up there and show what i can do on my instrument you know what i mean but i know that it's better if i listen to everybody and make it fit in and use space and it's really i have to kick myself in the ass and that's what i do you know i just remind myself or try to every time and uh you know the reason is that's separating the men from the boys you know this noodling thing because you know you can have a band with vocals and hip arrangements and then you can noodle in between and the vocals and the hip arrangements are gonna be what saves you you know but if you're a jazz group all you got is the is the solos you know all you have is that so you gotta do it good you gotta say something well, you do a really interesting thing where you make your solos stay engaging and interesting, whether it be eight bars or whether it be eight choruses. And some of that to me, I mean, there there's ways that I listened. It's like, okay, what are the objective things that Schofield does that makes it sound interesting? And there's phrasing, there's tone, there's time, there's all those little, you know, just things about your playing. But there's also, you have a way of... of of having something feel melodic and using the quote unquote proper scale pentatonic blues things, 
But then there's also some interesting kind of out, quote unquote, notes that you use or certain interesting harmonic tools that you use to gauge interest and keep interest and keep things engaging, keep the story going. What are some, like to you, can you speak to some specific Schofield moves that you <laughs> that you approach for harmonic interest? People ask me that all the time, like, what, how do you, what do you play that's out, that out stuff? What is that? Yeah. And, and I don't mean to oversimplify anything, sure. but I actually am not sure what it is because, you know, I mean, basically it's kind of, you move to the next fret. Mm. <laughs> That's basically it, you know, but. Not to oversimplify, but just move to the next fret. Which is not right, <laughs> but I found the different ways of moving around yeah. certain things that I like. And, and, uh, you know, when you think about it, you know, if you're playing in one key where there's like eight right notes or seven correct notes or eight, right. Or whatever, then that doesn't give you too many wrong notes, you know, left. And so a lot of times it, it can be seen as a half step away. A major third can be away, can be seen as a half step away. Mm. You know what I mean? A minor third could be, be a minor third away but it could also be um oh shit wait a minute like like a whole step away Uh, anyway you see what i mean i'm totally confused and i can't explain it (laughs) but the other thing is well it sounds like you're talking about resolution then and where you're landing yeah you can land in or out you know you can land both places or all the places but um i guess what i wanted to say was my out stuff and everything comes from being a jazz fan and listening to those guys that you mentioned before that mm-hmm. pioneered this way of stretching out on one chord, you know, cause as soon as they said, we're going to just play on D minor, then they realized they had to do something a little more than that. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, Coltrane's group and with McCoy Tyner's, uh, harmonic thing, you know, wrote the book on that. And, and I've studied those guys, but the thing is, you talk about study, you know, you can't go to school that I know of for that. And uh, I mean, it's a little different than diatonic harmony. And it's yeah. a, part of the beauty is nobody knows what they're doing. But it, one thing I found is if I just, you know, if you're one thing is you got to keep it moving. And I've heard some older guys say that, you know, you got to just mix it up, keep it moving, mix it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. that helps me a lot when I think about that. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's again kind of simplifying it, but as a conceptual thing, at least it it keeps your mind going, okay, if, what, if I talk about something too I, I get so confused and everything, then I realize I don't have to talk about it. I'm just trying to explain something, but you know already what I'm talking about. So, yeah. we're okay, you know? And it gets back to that 10,000 hours in order to be a really good player, you know what yeah. I mean? You've heard about that, right? Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. Gladwell, right. I really think that the the mysteries of music will unveil themselves to you if you put in the 10,000 hours. And then you'll be saying, I don't know, how, I don't know what it is, but, it's a, but you can do it. All of a yeah. sudden you can play and you understand yeah. music, but it's hard to put it into words. And the other thing is, the reason we don't put it into words, I think, if somebody said this, is that, Thought is actually too slow for improvising music. Mm, like it's that. not thought. It's something else, you know, that, that just 
is there right now, you know? <laughs> that concept I love. And that's actually also uh, a Malcolm Gladwell concept that he talks about in his book, Blink. He's got a book called Blink, where it's just, it, it actually relates a lot to music and just using your own instincts. And I think the more that we hone our instincts and the more that we, ho- we hone in what it is that we do, the more it's just, we're, we're, if we get out of our own way, we can just be our best and play our best thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the thing is, we all study the geometry of music, whatever that is, major and minor. And it was a big thing when I learned about the cycle of fifths and stuff. This has really helped me. You know, it's not to put down theoretical stuff, but instinct I, I rely on, I believe in more and more, I guess. Yeah. And I have people ask me all the time, too, about like, oh, should I learn music theory? It's like, well, that's a tough question because I think you really should learn music theory just so you have the language and common like, hey, go to the minor four chord. So so, so if somebody says that to you, you know what they're talking about, you know, just for a, a means of communication. But as far as like writing or playing, I think you're right. Like I, I, I'm starting to learn the same thing that instinct is so much of of the game and it's such a huge part and, and i guess we can improve what we know like when you first play a four minor chord you might not really hear it but if you <laughs> play it enough and and understand it intellectually after a while it becomes instinct that's what i've i've found for me because i don't have perfect pitch i'm no genius musical genius you know i'm a genius but not a music no <laughs> um you know i'm yeah i'm not and and uh you don't have to be. You just have to do it. Well, and yeah, eventually, what I think about in music, too, is how it affects me emotionally. And when I first heard the four minor, it triggered a certain emotional response that I realized the same thing happened when I hit a flat seven dominant chord. And then what I realized through the music theory is like, oh, well, it's just a minor four triad over the flat seven no wonder it hits me similar. You know, it's like there's certain things that eventually they're going to trigger a certain emotional response for each of us differently. And then that can inform what we decide to use in a solo because it's going to, to score the moment. Yeah. Going for what you love, you know? Okay. So speaking of not being able to talk about things, uh, <laughs> I, I want to hear you talk a little bit about a couple things that we can kind of hopefully make tangible because obviously you know you're you're no no i don't i don't mean to to you know we should and especially i mean because we're doing it for for premier guitar we should you know i'll try and talk in in uh yeah about stuff that we all do i don't mean to get too off on the cloud oh no i i think conceptual is great and conceptual by the time you have all the the like the facility and the timing and the groove and all that stuff, the conceptual is then where the game is and where the fun happens. If you don't uh, have a concept, you got a misconception. I like that. There's the one-liner. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I didn't make that up. But, oh, okay. Uh, somebody, all right, all right. Somebody, somebody said, Chet Baker said that, but I'm not sure exactly who said that, but I love that. Concept. That is so good. I think a really important thing in concept, too, is just your voice, your sound. For me, that sound, my voice, is the Stratocaster. That's what draws out my unique voice in its purest form. And that doesn't mean that other guitars can't get it. I mean, they, you know, it's true. Tone is in the hands. But I want to encourage you guys, for those of you trying to find your voice, check out some different instruments. And where to start? My suggestion, Fender American Ultra Series. Okay? They got a Tele. They got a Strat. They got a Jazzmaster. 
you can try all kinds of different tones and different feels there. Your bass player, they got the P bass, they got the J bass, nice modern feel, classic sound. They're great, check them out. All right, let's get back to it. It's clear that you have chops, can play circles around the guitar, blah, 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 all that stuff, whatever. That thing aside, there, the thing that stands out to me is your tone, your touch, your phrasing. How do you practice those things? Is there a way to actually practice that stuff or is it really just listening? Um, yeah, I practiced it because I feel like whatever concept I came up with, um, you know, I started out like all of us, you know, I, I was a blues fan, you know, and I could play like that pentatonic scale and make it happen. I was like, wow, I'm a blues man. You know, and I yeah. went back to my blues records and I, and I, and after I was doing it for a while, I was like, yeah, I got it. Oh, that's that. And I could hear it, you know, and I could get a little bending happening on the guitar and all that. And then I, I decided I wanted to, to, to learn jazz and the, the, the pentatonic shape didn't work. I was like, holy shit, wait a minute. This is really hard, you know? But for <laughs> some reason, I wanted to do it enough, you know? I yeah. think par par partially it was like, I can't just be a rock and roll guy, you know, because, uh, you know, those guys, all they do is get high and get laid all the time, you know? And uh, which sounded actually really good to me. But, um, I just, you know, I, I wanted to go for something else, right? And uh, so I said, okay, jazz. And then I had to slowly find the things on the guitar that sounded like jazz mm. because I was a jazz fan and I listened to all these records, right? And, 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 and that, it's almost like when you put your thing together, it's you know what you don't want to sound like more than what you want to sound like. Sure. You know, so I just, it just, it's those 10,000 hours of screwing around with the guitar and, and get, developing a vocabulary of stuff that, that feels kind of feels right. So you know? for you, it was, it was more about listening and transcribing and figuring out, getting the sound on your instrument rather than like reading a book that tells you which arpeggios and chromatic approach notes are going to make you sound that way. You know, look, I've read a lot of books and, you know, whatever was out there. Um, and, and you'll glean a little bit from some yeah. stuff, but mainly you have to put in the time with the instrument and that's also, you know, getting guitar hands, you know, so that you're getting yeah. a sound like, you know what I mean? When you yes. meet, meet somebody that's just learning guitar and, and you say, oh, oh man, they can hardly get a sound out of the instrument. And then you realize I've, I've been doing this for a while. I can pick it up and get something happening. Yeah. Um, sound wise. You know, yep. just with the string. I'm not talking about anything other than fingers and strings. We talked about different rhythm sections you've played with. How do you approach groove with different rhythm sections? How do you approach practicing a time feel, like the metronome grid time feel, versus developing an inner groove and an inner unique time feel? Because your time feel is is part of your sound. That's part of how I know that it's Schofield or somebody doing the Schofield thing. Well... I had really shitty time when I started out and, and, uh, it was, a uh, like I've known people that just naturally have really nice rhythm, you know, and mm -hmm. I, in, in a way it's like the people that could, you know, get the basket in when they played basketball, you know, all of a sudden yeah. some people could just do it. They had the visual and, you know, physical thing I with rhythm. I, I didn't have that. So I just worked on it so much 
because I, I just didn't want to sound like a stiffo kid from Connecticut. You know, I just wanted, <laughs> so I just worked on it. And I still, uh, compared to some of the people I play with, you know, my time, it, it moves around, you know, it drags. I have to force myself not to just slow down to a snail's pace, you know, hmm. and uh, sometimes. And then I've also found out about catching the wave of groove and when it enters your system and then you're in there. And uh, then I don't slow down to a snail's pace, you know. Yeah. But, and I also hopefully don't rush, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's more of, of the, you know, long period of time that I've been looking at what this is and how important it is. And, and the rhythm is essential to the music. And I knew that. And again, that's a jazz thing, you know, that that maybe comes first. You know, they asked Sonny Rollins once, what's the most important thing about your music? And, and he thought about it and he's so melodic and, and, you know, and, and has all this hip melodic and, uh, you know, harmonic stuff, but he said, it's the rhythm. And it really is, I guess, if you had to, uh, think of one thing, of course, the notes are connected to the rhythm. So certain chords are funky just on their own, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and they, they inspire a rhythm, but, um, I just worked on it, man. I just, I, I just thought about it a lot. Yeah. I love that. How has your playing changed over the last several decades and how has your artistic vision in your own projects changed over the last several years? How do you keep creatively inspired? Um, I don't know how my playing has changed other than hopefully I've just gotten better. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm closer to what, because I've always been me, yep. you know, I just feel like I couldn't do it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I've been lucky enough that I've been recorded and, and on the scene when I yeah. couldn't do it, you know. That being said, and, hold on, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Is there certain records that you listen back to that you that you just can't listen to? Well, I, anything I made in the seventies, um, I, 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 there might be some stuff that's good in there, but I pretty much don't listen to them. Okay. You know, it was sort of more, you know, in the mid eighties, I, I feel like I, you know, which was already, I was in my, my mid thirties, you know, yeah. when I, and I feel like then I could get to what I was trying to get to or to some music, you know, so yeah. I don't go back and listen to the early stuff. And, you know, if I listen to a concert from last night, uh, I would be dissatisfied a lot of times, you know. Hmm. Um, maybe if I listen to that same concert a month later, I say, "Oh, that was okay, cool." I was, I was too worried, you know. Um, it's it's hard to to, to tell, you know. It's so hard to judge your own stuff, you know. Yeah. And you know, so that's so I don't know how my playing has changed, but I've worked on it, so hopefully I've gotten better. I'm getting to the point in life, man, which you're going to get to later on where you think, man, am I getting worse? Is that just like happening? Because, you know, in the same way that it's, uh, you know, it's uh, hard for me to run a marathon, you know, actually I could never run a marathon at all, but, um, you know, it's, it, you know, physical decline and, uh, I think I'm okay, but you know, I wonder about that, but, um, no, you know, I think I've just gotten better. That's, basically it and your other question was was where do i go for inspiration right or how do i get how do i stay inspired yeah like you've you've had so many different projects throughout the years so many different types of things such creative vision through all of those where do you draw from in that sort of thing um i draw from wherever the hell i can man and sometimes that means stealing outright theft of music from <laughs> other places 
And, uh, and uh, I just, you know, I just always really wanted it. You know, I've, I've always been just driven to, to be a musician. You know, when I started out, I would have just probably worked in a guitar store, mm-hmm. you know, just to be around it. And, uh, and I wasn't ever thinking that it would be as good as it has been. But um, I, I do have to, you know, I've got some techniques, you know, where um, at some point you have to quit and just walk around the block and let your mind recompose itself. And then you'll come back refreshed, you know? Yeah. It's like when you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and that musical problem is not the same as it was when it was driving you crazy the day yeah. before. So sometimes just taking a step back, stepping away, and then... Yeah, and this is really important, and this is part of what we all kind of know. It's life, you know? It's nothing... Yeah. Not just music, it's everything. So, you know, you. the other thing is, you put in the time, you will see the results. So mm. you have to be ready to work hard, too. And... Um, uh, the, we de- the other thing about about you know how do you stay fresh is we all develop I think uh, a, a second sense of when something has got that thing you yeah. know that that makes it wow I like that and yeah. we're just going for that that's you know and that's again trusting your intuition so I'm just yeah. always looking for that thing that's kind of fresh you know. So what you're telling me is that when you put out Uber Jam, it wasn't because some manager was telling you it was a great business decision. It was a creative outlet. <laughs> it definitely was. But you know what? Um, there are a lot of different things that come together. I mean, all of us want to, to have a, a career. Yes. And, and, we want, and with that, without an audience, your career is going to be giving guitar lessons, you know? Um, first of all, you want to be able to work with other people and maybe somebody else will be getting to the gigs and you're going to be a sideman in that band. Then, you know, you, you maybe don't have to worry about having an audience in the same way. You have to worry about playing really well and mm-hmm. playing the song really well and fitting into the situation and, uh, and making everybody else sound good, which is what you have to do all the time anyway, yeah. whether it's your band or not. But um, Uber Jam, you know, when I started to play kind of funk stuff whenever that was you know i realized that there was an audience for that that didn't listen to uh um charlie parker and 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 uh i i've been lucky because a lot of the stuff i like in that you know groove based area other people like too you know but yeah you know what? I love it when people love the music. I, I just love it. And, and I'm not an island under myself. Yeah. And, you know, there are musicians that I know that are really great and they can't play because there's no audience at all. Mm. You know, I mean, they can't even get the gig at Starbucks playing a duet, you know, uh, for past the hat. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know, it's it. So, it, you know, we are all running businesses. You know, yeah. we're trying to get our music out there. And so that enters into it, you know, and I, I, I but I, 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 I know when it's, it's, I played something I didn't like, some song I didn't like, but, and then you get, you can't play that, you know, mm-hmm. if there's anything you don't like, you cannot play it. Everybody yeah. kind of has to like the song. You know, so it, the, odd, like worse comes to worse, and uh, 
it becomes super successful, you're going to have to play it the rest of your life. <laughs> right. So you better like it. And, you know, look, we all get sick of stuff, you know, even if you did like it at one time. But, you know, I mean, people say, and I know you know about this, you know, people who don't know anything about music say to you, man, you're so good on the guitar. Why not? How come you're not like in the Rolling Stones or something? You could have done that. And you know what? I couldn't have done that. I can only do what I could do, you mm. know? And, and if I was in a, if I was a rock and roll musician, I, that's because I would have wanted that more than anything, you know? Yeah. And, and it's not like what I, you know, you're so good on the guitar. You know, those guys are really good too in their own way. And, uh, we each just have to do what we can do, you know, and what we wanted. That's encouraging. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, and if what you want to do has no audience, you kind of change <laughs> mm -hmm. because we want to exist. We have the instinct for survival. You know, I mean, a, a lot of the avant-garde jazz musicians in the sixties, Ornette and those guys, there was a scene for that. You know, there were people yeah. that loved that and would buy tickets and buy records and, mm -hmm. and they would write about them and, and all that, you know, so that's why that happened. There's nothing that's, that's, uh, completely on its own. You know, we're part of humanity and all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And when I listen to album, especially an artist who's been around for so long and I try to interpret what you're putting out as an album. Why, why are you putting out this record? What are you trying to say through this album? I want to get into the, the artist mind, the creative mind. When I hear something like Uber Jam, it's its own thing. When I hear something like Hudson, you know, it's like old rock tunes and turning them into jazz with a bunch of jazz guys. Country for Old Men, similar thing, but with country songs. And then like Government Mule, the, the project with them, it's like, rock and blues stuff, or you have the a Ray Charles covers album where you're collaborating with other people. It seems like you're pretty intentional with your concepts and Absolutely, with your Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, part of that is is the business. And, and um, I found that, you know, if you've been in it for a while, then you can get gigs at the festival or, or at the club or wherever you want to play, but they always say, wait a minute, what are you doing now? Because you did that last year. Yeah. And it really pisses me off because it's like, you know, what the hell, you know, a good group and really good music and, you know, and, and we're going to have some different songs with the same personnel. And I don't know what the concept is. That's what I want to do inside because that's real. But the, the scene has made me do different projects. Cause when I say, uh, this is John Schofield playing, uh, Uber jam or the music of Ray Charles or country music or whatever, then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, that's interesting. We'll have that. But it's the same old me, you know, but I'm just sure. playing different, you know, uh, bag or whatever. So in a way, I, I, I don't like that, but it's made me do all these projects. And I'm so glad I did because every every time I learn about some kind of music that I love, like country for old men, I would just went back. I always knew some country stuff, right? I liked it. Yeah. But I went back and listened to a bunch of the stuff that I that I had liked and looked a little further into it. And I learned some shit that I wouldn't have learned on my own. So yeah. 
I, I, I like that the world makes me do that. Well, and then in that case, sometimes it is, you know, it's, it's about the management uh, or business decision or the promoters wanting something different and you adapting and saying, okay, well, I'm still going to do my same thing. It's just something else for the publicists to talk about. Yeah. yeah and you want to work. Well, that tells me that you're, you're pretty aware and self-aware of the business side of things. You, you've had a lot of different side men. You've been a side man. Uh, there's a lot of people that are wondering how do you get a gig now? Like, and, and how do you keep a gig? How do you get session work? How do you become an artist? What are you looking for in musicians that, that want to be in your band? Uh, and I'm also asking for myself cause I want to be your rhythm guitar player. <laughs> and then I tell you, you got some nice rhythm shit happening. So we might, <laughs> might want to do that. Sometime. All right. I'm in, I'm, but you played lead too good, man. You'd, you'd be like, uh, Hey, you know, and then I'm, no, I'm, I'm cool. Just hanging in the pocket, listening to you, man. That's what you say right now. But listen, Avi <laughs> Bortnick, they got the uh, Avi Bortnick, who was the quote unquote rhythm guitar player in Uber jam who can take smoke and solos. He didn't mind playing rhythm all night, you know, and he was doing more than that because he was triggering the samples. Yeah. But he was so good at rhythm guitar that, um, and with stuff I couldn't do, you know, cause his, his kind of Nile Rogers kind of, you know, James Brown, I mean, just, whoa, he's so right on, you know, but yeah. anyway, I think first of all, you know, it, it's a different music world than when I was coming up in mm -hmm. the seventies. Uh, uh, but I think that the same things hold true, even though, uh, you said I'm into the business, but that has also stopped me. I mean, I've, I've, I've made myself not be into the business aspect enough to stay, uh, uh, you know, to follow these basic sort of foundation of you want to be part of a group that makes music. And when you're part of a group, you have to make the whole group sound good. And you have to think beyond what your own needs are right now. You have to make the song sound good. And all this is, I'm, I, you have to work well with others, man. It's like, yeah. it's right kindergarten, you know, yeah. talking about this stuff, but it's really true. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's the most important thing for any of us. And it turns out when you're leading a band, you have to do that too. Yeah. You know, you have to, well, okay, I'm going to do this for the, greater good you know yeah um which uh, i say all the time and a lot of times i probably don't do it because it is my band but but uh i think that's really important and it seems like cream rises you know if mm -hmm. somebody is really uh um good and uh is out there playing with other people um people are going to hear about them but yeah. As you know, you put together your own projects, you know, even when the phone is not ringing, you just yeah. do it anyway. Yeah. And that's that's what gets it happening. And uh, I'm sure you could talk about that, too, with what you've done. Mm -hmm. um, but. I think it's really important to take every uh, opportunity to play with other people when you're young, starting out musician, um, even though you say, oh, man, I don't want to do that. Or I'm not good enough to do that. Or doesn't sound like that much fun. I'd rather stay home and play along with YouTube. Um, 
something happens when you meet other people and the networking starts and that yeah. person knows somebody else and that person knows somebody else and then you're you're connecting and you're learning in a way that you wouldn't learn when you sit home left to your own devices. Totally. I love that. Thank you. So that's that's kind of like if you want to get a gig playing for another artist, but if you were if you had still had all the knowledge that you have now, you have all the the wisdom and all the everything. You everything you've learned from all the the greats that you've played with, everything you've learned from your own experience touring, putting out records, but nobody knows who you are. You're still as good as you are and have all your same instincts. What would you do if nobody knew John Schofield? What would you do to get going and started as an artist today? If nobody knew who I was and I could play the way I could play, I would be upset, you know. But <laughs> nobody would get to where I'm at if they hadn't been on the scene. Mm. Because I, I, I couldn't have developed what I am without all the hours and hours of messing around with other people and putting together music for this gig, this whatever thing, you know, uh, you know, lame stuff that didn't turn into anything, gigs that were awful and, uh, you know, terrible bar mitzvahs and weddings that I played at, you know, whatever stupid jam session with guys that weren't as good as you, blah, blah, blah. And all that comes together to make you who you are. And, uh, and just as far as getting your own music out there, I think now is such a, you know, I mean, when I started out, there were these tiny little record companies that you could get on if you were sort of good. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and you would just, and you could make really cheap records. And I made records for Enja Records in Germany, you know, and, uh, and there was a Japanese label. And I was already kind of on the scene enough yeah. to get those things. But, and I think that those sort of things still exist somewhat so you know if you're a young musicians i would say get your music out there and if, and i know now with youtube everybody's doing stuff for free and just putting it out there and maybe that's the way to do it i don't know and I, luckily i haven't had to think about that yeah. except for telling people to turn off their phones when i play a gig so that they don't put it on youtube <laughs> um but um no, I, I a part of it is the information age has made it such a different world that i'm not uh, quiet up on exactly how to get your music out there other than take every, uh, opportunity that comes yeah. your way. Uh, and, and, and everything adds up to a career in the end of, mm -hmm. of just doing this and that. And, uh, you know, it'll work out. Um, yeah. and it's not going to be easy because being a musician is, is, you know, it's, 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 you, none of us are in it for the money, are we? You know, yeah. I mean, if, if we'd be doing something else if we were obsessed with financial security Absolutely. to the point, you know, yeah. <laughs> but we love the music and we just yeah. want to be part of that, you know, and we just yeah. will do anything to be part of that. Yeah. For many of us, it's, there's just no choice. It's what we were called and uh, meant to do with life and we just have to do it. <laughs> there you go. We've both had the experience of playing with the Metropole Orchestra and playing with a 60 piece orchestra is very different than playing with a five piece band. And you've been everything from a big band, you know, five piece, three piece, 20 piece, 60 piece. You've recorded 
and and performed with the Metropole Orchestra, which is a super fun thing. What's your experience? What was your experience like playing with them? And how do you approach playing with such a large ensemble? Where do you let go of things, and where are you very specific about certain things? Well, um, first of all, with with Metropole uh, Orchestra and the stuff we did, um, this Mendoza really. He wrote most of those arrangements and and was in charge of the orchestra. I just had to play guitar, you know, and uh, and so I had suggestions about how things went, but yeah, mainly I had to again blend in with them, and I was always too loud. It seems totally <laughs> weird to me that uh, a sixty-piece orchestra is quieter than my five-piece band in my basement, you know, <laughs> but it is. So that was actually a a, a, a a struggle for me because I, in in recent years I haven't been using as much distortion pedals, you know, and stuff to get a sound. I've yeah. been just turning a deluxe reverb up to five, and it sounds great. Yeah. And and then that can be too loud for an orchestra, and yeah. uh, and then I have to like, oh, I'm going to play with shitty tone. I'm going to turn it down. But okay, so that um. But I think what you're talking about is the amount of written music, learned music, as versus to the improvisation. Yeah. And, you know, I've never uh, been satisfied to just improvise. You know, I've always liked the song element. And I love songs, you know. And uh, so, you know, as long as the song, as the arrangement doesn't get in your way. I've also had the experience of some of my own stuff that I really worked on, you know? And, and then it was like, this thing is so weighty. We can never get past the arrangement Mm. that it never turns into anything other than this arrangement, which might be good, but yeah, it sucks all the mental energy out of the music to follow this arrangement so that nothing else can really happen. Also, it dwarfs the improvisation so much that the improvisation can't shine. So, you know, uh, so it's always this uh, back and forth between, you know, how to uh, how to make it work, you know. And uh, sometimes, too, if I, I'm thinking, oh, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to have like this little four bar phrase and that's all we're going to play. But it's going to be all deep and stuff, you know. Yeah. And then it doesn't kind of work. It just turns into this stupid four bar phrase that you're sick of. And then, you know, so you're constantly adjusting and making stuff work. And for me, playing with the Metropole Orchestra was so much fun to hear Vince's uh, arrangements and that orchestra play that music, because I never play with strings and orchestral instruments, you know? So the thrill of that actually just inspired me every time I was uh, on tour with them or recording or whatever. Yeah, it's an experience unlike any other, being sitting amongst an orchestra and, and having that many people around. Yeah, we as guitarists don't get to do that. The first time I ever did that, uh, I was a Berkeley student, and one of the teachers had written this big thing to for uh, like jazz big band and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. So mm. we went to played at Symphony Hall and uh, Boston, and my amp didn't work for the performance. It was like the thing just blew up all of a sudden. And you can't stop us. Uh, yeah. You know, a 90 piece orchestra doesn't stop. I'm just there, you know, what? No sound, you know, and all the and the violins just thought it was hilarious, you know, <laughs> that that this kid can't even get a sound because his stupid amp blew up. You know? Oh, man. <laughs> wow. 
Maybe they're the ones that sabotage. Maybe the conductor's the one that sabotaged you because you were too loud at rehearsal. <laughs> I think you're right. It was those, the violinists were jealous. Of yeah, they they unplugged your speaker cables. Just a couple couple more things before we finish up here. We don't always get to play with other guitar players. In your case, throughout your career, you've gotten to play with some incredible guitar players. You've done a record with John Abercrombie, uh, a record with Pat Metheny, Bass Desires, Mark Johnson record with Bill Frizzell. What is it like for you to play with other guitar icons like that? Well, you know, I mean, guitars really work well together. You know, they really do. We know that. Um, uh, as, you know, the lead guy, yeah, most of the time you don't play with another guitar. But you, when you think back to actually the instrument and how we started out, no, no other instrument can you sit down in the, you know, in somebody's bedroom with two guitars and and be a whole orchestra. Uh, guitar works really well like that. And uh, getting to do it with musicians and, and uh, personality, you know, people that play with such incredible personality as Abercrombie and Frizzell and Matheny, uh, it was just a joy. So their personalities are very different. Their playing styles are very different. How, did you adjust yourself and your playing to match that energy, or did you just kind of... Not really. I mean, I think we we adjust to whatever situation without thinking about it, you know. I knew those guys and and uh, loved their, their playing, and, and we just played. So you've collaborated with a lot. Of, is there any other... Um, artists that you've still yet to collaborate that, with that you still really want to? You know, there probably is. I just can't think of who it is. But you know what's weird is because I have had a, a lot of times where you finally get to play with your idol for, mm-hmm. you know, for two hours, right? Yeah. And uh, you don't really get to get into it like mm-hmm. you do with your buddies, you know? And there's nothing like playing with people and feeling comfortable and getting to do it for a while. Yeah. Uh, the thrill of playing with your idols is incredible as yeah. a fan because you just get to be there. And that's what makes it all great. Yeah. All right. To kind of close things off, I have a couple of kind of quick, quick fire fun questions just for for those uh, that have been itching for gear answers, you know, because it's a guitar podcast. So, you know, there's guitar there. Guitar players love gear, don't they? Don't yeah, I love gear. Yeah. Yeah. We all we all do. Yeah. OK. So any purchase call it 20 bucks or less. What is any, what does any guitar player need? Some sort of thing. What's the essential $20 or less. Everybody's got to have it. A pick. <laughs> Great. I like that. You might play with your fingers and that's, that's cool, but you might try a pick, you know, e- everything else costs more than $20. Doesn't it? Well, the most common answer is headstock tuner. Oh, good, good, good idea. That's right. I mean, I'd, I'd be lost without a tuner. I've forgotten how to tune up my guitar. <laughs> and I think all all of us sit at home with our headstock tuners now, and it's we crazy. never tune up by ear. And yeah, uh, yeah I like I, I lo- yeah. Okay, purchase a couple hundred dollars or less. What does everybody need? You know, um, you, you should help me on this, but I, I actually use high end guitar cables, um, mm. and uh, I, I use the uh, what's it called? Shit, I can't remember the name of the oh Vovox V O V O X. Okay. Switzerland, they make a difference. And I think they're not the only company. There are a lot of really high-end cables. And you know what? I've A-beat them, and they make a slight difference. Um, 
Is it in tone? Is it in clarity? Is it in EQ response? Is it, what is it? it it's, it's sort of more, more tone is there, okay. a little bit more of everything. And, I, you know, I got a good story. When I was playing at this Italian restaurant with Michael Moore, the great bass player, on, on West 13th Street, um, we, I played there all the time, just the two of us, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, Jim Hall lived across the street. And one day I forgot my guitar chord. And this was in the 70s. And I had knew Jim a little bit. I had taken a couple of lessons from him. And he knew I was one of his fans and everything. And he was a... So I called him. I said, Jim, I've got to play in like 10 minutes. Can I borrow your guitar chord? He goes, okay. Just meet me in the lobby of my building. It was right across the street. And he gave me a chord. Yeah. And I went and plugged in. It was this little red chord, right? And it, there were no highs when I played through this chord. It was a, a piece of shit. And I realized, ah, that's the secret of Jim's mellow tone. Um, <laughs> this is the game. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. But then afterwards, I thought, maybe he just gave me the crappiest chord he had. I don't know. <laughs> He's trying to steal your gig. He wants to make sure you don't sound good, so he gets the gig. All right, how about this then? No limit on price. What's the, what's the purchase that every guitar player needs? What's the one piece of gear? You know, what we need is a new guitar. That's what we think we need, <laughs> but we actually probably don't, you know, because I really think, I mean, to a certain extent, it's in the fingers, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's way the most important. You have to have a good instrument. Yeah. You can't have a broken guitar. You have to have one that's functioning properly, you know. Yeah. And there is a difference between a Tele and a Strat and a 335 and an L5. You know, they are different animals you know yeah and so you you want you become aware of that um i can't stop lusting after other guitars you know and uh um i think what we need more than anything is to sit down with one instrument this is kind of the jazz way like when you would see jim hall and kenny burrell and those guys they would just bring their guitar to the gig yeah and then you would see them 15 years later and it was the same guitar and and I remember Jim Hall told me when I was asking him something about about technical about the guitar. He goes, "You know what? I don't know very much about the guitar," and and I thought it was stupid for him to say that. And then afterwards, I realized, no, he he, you know, compared to a luthier, I guess he doesn't, you know, yeah. because he just plays them. Yeah. And and it's you know, so for uh, unlimited price, what do we all need? Well, what's what's helped me was to get a good amp, you know, and there are different kinds of amps. And I remember when I was a kid, I I bought, I moved up and eventually when I was about 17 or something, I bought a Fender Twin and it had, it was the one that I bought from Manny's Music Store had two JBL 12s in it. So this thing was so clean and loud and, you know, it just sounded awful, man. And I was blowing everybody's ears out, you know, because I don't even think I had a distortion pedal. It's just like, why? I had no idea why this sounded like shit, right? And then I went in this, it was uh, in Connecticut where I grew up, there was this hi-fi store where for some reason they had an old magnetone amp that was kind of broken, you know, but mm-hmm. i I just wanted to try it out. I plugged in and it was like, oh man, this is it. You know, there's a little bit of distortion. I said, well, this is cool, you know, from the amp. 
but it was loud enough to play with a drummer. Yeah. And uh, so you need to find an amp that works nice. Now, some other people, if they're going for an arch top, big, fat jazz guitar sound, they they might just want a polytone and that's it because that's yeah. what works well, you know. Yeah. But uh, for me, it's been finding that amp that has some give and some warmth. And that's why I like Fox AC30s, you know. Yeah. And and uh, but they're a little too loud to play with my buddy Bill Stewart. He gets mad at me. So yeah. when I started playing playing through a deluxe, uh, the new Fender uh, 65 reissue deluxe reverb amp, uh, that works because that has a nice thing. So the drummer's telling you you're too loud. <laughs> dig, dig that. Well, it's, it's just this my buddy Bill Stewart. You know, yeah. he, he he actually wants to hear his drums when he hits them. How about that? Yeah. Oh, Bill's amazing. Incredible touch. He's a, uh, I think, a genius, actually. Yeah. And I don't use that word too often. Well, you did use it for yourself earlier, I think. He and I are geniuses. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No, I'm not. Only. No, I'm. I'm yeah. Did I say that? That's <laughs> you said you're a genius, but not a musical genius. I'm not a genius. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty, I've, I've never gotten my IQ. My mother had my IQ results and she would never tell me. But I think she would have told me if I had been a genius, knowing her. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being here and uh, hope that we get to play together in person sometime. I'd love to. And it was so great to meet you like this and to hang. And uh, I want to go listen to a bunch of Wolfpeck. Wolfpeck. How do you pronounce it? Wolfpeck. So wolf, so it is Deutsch. Well, it's it's a uh, it's a fake German word for wolf pack. Wolf. Pack. Yeah, somehow yes. I knew that sort of, sort of <laughs> that it was. Yes, I love it. There you have it. Wisdom and knowledge from old man Sko. And I'm not saying old man Sko out of disrespect. I'm saying old man Sko because that's his Instagram handle. That's how you can find him on social media websites and whatnots. Check out. He's got music coming out all the time. He's a legend. I don't know how he does it. He's inspiring. He, he's somebody who inspires me to just keep cranking out music, cranking out different projects, and continue to explore who I am as a person and as a musician. And if you're interested in hearing that, me exploring my voice, I got a new record out that I collaborated with John Batiste on, a record that he and I did together called Meditations, kind of based on some jumping points of musical ideas where we just went for it and got into some different moods and different vibes. Uh, in the jazz, pop, experimental, it's like it's not free jazz, it's not jazz, it's not like yoga music, but it's just its own thing. So check it out if you're interested. We'll see you next week when we have Molly Tuttle, bluegrass shredder, songwriter extraordinaire, really fun conversation. We'll see you then. <laughs>